Section 55 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa McCleskey. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 4. Progress of Analytical Chemistry. Analysis, or the art of determining the constituents of which every compound is composed, constitutes the essence of chemistry. It was therefore attempted as soon as the science put on anything like a systematic form. At first with very little success, but as knowledge became more and more general, chemists became more expert, and something like regular analysis began to appear. Thus, Brandt showed that white vitriol is a compound of sulfuric acid and oxide of zinc, and Margraff that selenite or gypsum is a compound of sulfuric acid and lime. Dr. Black made analyses of several of the salts of magnesia, so far at least as to determine the nature of the constituents, for hardly any attempt was made in that early period of the art to determine the weight of the respective constituents. The first person who attempted to lay down rules for the regular analysis of minerals and to reduce these rules to practice was Bergman. This he did in his papers De Docimasia Mineralum Humida, De Terra Gemarum, and De Terra Tourmaline, published between the years 1777 and 1780. To analyze a mineral, or to separate it into its constituent parts, it is necessary in the first place to be able to dissolve it in an acid. Bergman showed that most minerals become soluble in muriatic acid if they be reduced to a very fine powder and then heated to redness, or fused with an alkaline carbonate. After obtaining a solution in this way, he pointed out methods by which the different constituents may be separated one after another and their relative quantities determined. The fusion with an alkaline carbonate required a strong red heat. An earthenware crucible could not be employed, because at a fusing temperature it would be corroded by the alkaline carbonate, and thus the mineral under analysis would be contaminated by the addition of a quantity of foreign matter. Bergman employed an iron crucible. This effectually prevented the addition of any earthy matter, but at a red heat the iron crucible itself is apt to be corroded by the action of the alkali and thus the mineral under analysis becomes contaminated with a quantity of that metal. This iron might easily be separated again by known methods, and would therefore be of comparatively small consequence, provided we were sure that the mineral under examination contained no iron. But when that happens, and it is a very frequent occurrence, an error is occasioned which we cannot obviate. Klaproth made a vast improvement in the art of analysis by substituting crucibles of fine silver for the iron crucibles of Bergman. The only difficulty attending their use was that they were apt to melt unless great caution was used in heating them. Dr. Wollaston introduced crucibles of platinum about the beginning of the present century. It is from that period that we may date the commencement of accurate analyzing. Bergman's processes, as might have been expected, were rude and imperfect. It was Klaproth who first systematized chemical analysis and brought the art to such a state that the processes followed could be imitated by others with nearly the same results, thus offering a guarantee for the accuracy of the process. Martin Henry Klaproth, to whom chemistry lies under so many and such deep obligations, 
was born at Bernigerode on the 1st of December, 1743. His father had the misfortune to lose his whole goods by a great fire on the 30th of June, 1751, so that he was able to do little or nothing for the education of his children. Martin was the second of three brothers, the eldest of whom became a clergyman and the youngest private secretary at war and keeper of the archives of the cabinet of Berlin. Martin survived both his brothers. He procured such meager instruction in the Latin language as the school of Wernigerode afforded, and he was obliged to procure his small school fees by singing as one of the church choir. It was at first his intention to study theology, but the unmerited hard treatment with which he met at school so disinclined him to study that he determined in his sixteenth year to learn the trade of an apothecary. Five years which he was forced to spend as an apprentice and two as an assistant in the public laboratory in Quendlinburg furnished him with but little scientific information and gave him little else than a certain mechanical adroitness in the most common pharmaceutical preparations. He always regarded as the epoch of his scientific instruction the two years which he spent in the public laboratory at Hanover from Easter 1766 till the same time in 1768. It was there that he first met with some chemical books of merit, especially those of Spielmann and Karthauser, in which a higher scientific spirit already breathed. He was now anxious to go to Berlin, of which he had formed a high idea from the works of Pott, Hengel, Rose, and Margraff. An opportunity presenting itself about Easter 1768, he was placed as assistant in the laboratory of Wenland, at the sign of the Golden Angel, in the street of the Moors. Here he employed all the time which a conscientious discharge of the duties of his station left him in completing his own scientific education, and as he considered a profounder acquaintance with the ancient languages than he had been able to pick up at the school of Wernigrode, indispensable for a complete scientific education, he applied himself with great zeal to the study of the Greek and Latin languages, and was assisted in his studies by Mr. Popplebourne, at that time a preacher. About Michaelmas, 1770, he went to Danzig as assistant in the public laboratory, but in March of the following year he returned to Berlin as assistant in the office of the elder Valentine Rose, who was one of the most distinguished chemists of his day. But this connection did not continue long, for Rose died in 1771. On his deathbed he requested Klaproth to undertake the superintendence of his office. Klaproth not only superintended this office for nine years with the most exemplary fidelity and conscientiousness, but undertook the education of the two sons of Rose, as if he had been their father. The younger died before reaching the age of manhood. The elder became his intimate friend and the associate of all his scientific researches. For several years before the death of Rose, which happened in 1808, they wrought together and Klaproth was seldom satisfied with the results of his experiments till they had been repeated by Rose. In the year 1780, Klaproth went through his trials for the office of apothecary with distinguished applause. His thesis, On Phosphorus and Distilled Waters, was printed in the Berlin Miscellaries for 1782. Soon after this, Klaproth bought what had formerly been the Fleming Laboratory in Spandau Street, and he married Sophia Christiana Lechman, with whom he lived till 1803, when she died, in a happy state. 
They had three daughters and a son who survived their parents. He continued in possession of this laboratory in which he had arranged a small workroom of his own till the year 1800 when he purchased the room of the academical chemists in which he was enabled at the expense of the academy to furnish a better and more spacious apartment for his labors, for his mineralogical and chemical collection, and for his lectures. As soon as he had brought the first arrangements of his office to perfection, an office which, under his inspection and management, became the model of a laboratory, conducted upon the most excellent principles, and governed with the most conscientious integrity, he published in the various periodical works of Germany, such as Krell's Chemical Annals, the writings of the Society for the Promotion of Natural Knowledge, Sell's Contribution to the Science of Nature and Medicine, Kohler's Journal, etc., a multitude of papers which soon drew the attention of chemists, for example, his Essay on Copal, on the Elastic Stone, on Proust's Cell Perle, on the Green Lead Spar of Chopau, on the Best Method of Preparing Ammonia, on the Carbonate of Barites, on the Wolfram of Cornwall, on Wood Tin, on the Violet Schwarl, on the Celebrated Aerial Gold, on appetite, etc. All these papers, which secured him a high reputation as a chemist, appeared before 1788, when he was chosen an ordinary member of the physical class of the Royal Berlin Academy of Sciences. The Royal Academy of Arts had elected him a member a year earlier. From this time, every volume of the Memoirs of the Academy, and many other periodical works besides, contain numerous papers by this accomplished chemist, and there is not one of them which does not furnish us with a more exact knowledge of some one of the productions of nature or art. He has either corrected false representations, or extended views that were before partially known, or has revealed the composition and mixture of the parts of bodies, and has made us acquainted with a variety of new elementary substances. Amidst all these labors, it is difficult to say whether we should most admire the fortunate genius, which, in all cases, readily and easily divined the point where anything of importance lay concealed, or the acuteness which enabled him to find the best means of accomplishing his object, or the unceasing labor and incomparable exactness with which he developed it, or the pure scientific feeling under which he acted, and which was removed at the utmost possible distance from every selfish, every avaricious, and every contentious purpose. In the year 1795, he began to collect his chemical works which lay scattered among so many periodical publications, and gave them to the world under the title Beiträge zur chemischen Kenntnis del Mineral Copa, Contributions to the Chemical Knowledge of Mineral Bodies. Of this work, which consists of six volumes, the last was published in 1815, about a year before the author's death. It contains no fewer than 207 treatises, the most valuable part of all that Klaproth has done for chemistry and mineralogy. It is a pity that the sale of this work did not permit the publication of a seventh volume, which would have included the rest of his papers, which he had not collected, and given us a good index to the whole work, which would have been of great importance to the practical chemist. There is indeed an index to the first five volumes, but it is meager and defective, containing little else than the names of the substances on which his experiments were made. 
Besides his own works, the interest which he took in the labors of others deserves to be noticed. He superintended a new edition of Gren's Manual of Chemistry, remarkable not so much for what he added as for what he took away and corrected. The part which he took in Wolfe's Chemical Dictionary was of great importance. The composition of every particular treatise was by Professor Wolfe, but Klaproth read over every important article before it was printed, and assisted the editor on all occasions with the treasures of his experience and knowledge. Nor was he less useful to Fisher in his translation of Berthollet on Affinity and on Chemical Statics. These meritorious services, and the luster which his character and discoveries conferred on his country, were duly appreciated by his sovereign. In 1782, he had been made assessor in the Supreme College of Medicine and of Health, which then existed. At a more recent period, he enjoyed the same rank in the Supreme Council of Medicine and of Health, and when this college was subverted, in 1810, he became a member of the medical deputation attached to the Ministry of the Interior. He was also a member of the Perpetual Court Commission for Medicines. His lectures, too, procured for him several municipal situations. As soon as the public became acquainted with his great chemical acquirements, he was permitted to give yearly two private courses of lectures on chemistry, one for the officers of the Royal Artillery Corps, the other for officers not connected with the Army, who wished to accomplish themselves for some practical employment. Both of these lectures assumed afterwards a municipal character. The former led to his appointment as Professor of the Artillery Academy instituted at Tempelhof, and after its dissolution to his situation as Professor in the Royal War School. The other lecture procured for him the Professorship of Chemistry in the Royal Mining Institute. On the establishment of the university, Klaproth's lectures became those of the university, and he himself was appointed Ordinary Professor of Chemistry and member of the Academical Senate. From 1797 to 1810, he was an active member of a small scientific society, which met yearly during a few weeks for the purpose of discussing the more recondite mysteries of the science. In the year 1811, the King of Prussia added to all his other honors the Order of the Red Eagle of the Third Class. Klaproth spent the whole of a long life in the most active and conscientious discharge of all the duties of his station, and in an uninterrupted course of experimental investigations. He died at Berlin on the 1st of January, 1817, in the 70th year of his age. Among the remarkable traits in his character was his incorruptible regard for everything that he believed to be true, honorable, and good. His pure love of science, with no reference whatever to any selfish, ambitious, and avaricious feeling. His rare modesty, undebased by the slightest vainglory or boasting. He was benevolently disposed toward all men, and never did a slighting or contemptuous word respecting any person fall from him. When forced to blame, he did it briefly and without bitterness, for his blame always applied to actions, not to persons. His friendship was never the result of selfish calculation, but was founded on his opinion of the personal worth of the individual. Amidst all the unpleasant accidents of his life, which were far from few, he evinced the greatest firmness of mind. In his common behavior he was pleasant and composed, and was indeed rather inclined to a joke. To all this may be added a true religious feeling, so uncommon among men of science of his day. 
His religion consisted not in words and forms, not in positive doctrines, nor in ecclesiastical observances, which, however, he believed to be necessary and honorable, but in a zealous and conscientious discharge of all his duties, not only of those which are imposed by the laws of men, but of those holy duties of love and charity, which no human law, but only that of God, can command, and without which the most enlightened of men is but a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. He early showed this religious feeling by the honorable care which he bestowed on the education of the children of Valentine Rose, nor did he show less care at an after period toward his assistants and apprentices, to whom he refused no instruction, and in whose success he took the most active concern. He took a pleasure in everything that was good and excellent, and felt a lively interest in every undertaking which he believed to be of general utility. He was equally removed from the superstition and infidelity of his age, and carried the principles of religion, not on his lips, but in the inmost feelings of his heart, from whence they emanated in actions which pervaded and ennobled his whole being and conduct. End of section 55